Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 39. Jeremiah chapter 39. We're going to look at chapter 39 and 40 tonight, uh, both chapters. And the title is The Fall of Jerusalem and the Faithful Shepherd. The Fall of Jerusalem and the Faithful Shepherd. Chapter 39 <clears throat> covers the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians. And Jeremiah has been talking about this for the last several chapters, that the Babylon, uh, Babylonians were going to come and they were going to take over, you know, they were going to rule in judgment, God's judgment, over the Israelites. The foolish king Zedekiah wouldn't listen to God's warning spoken through Jeremiah. Instead, he'll keep on listening to the feel-good lies of the false prophets. In chapter 39, the terrible slaughter that Jeremiah, like I said, had been predicting in the previous chapters takes place here. And chapter 39 describes the fall of Jerusalem. It describes its plunder, it describes its destruction, and the captivity and the banishment of thousands of Jewish people. Here's the sad part of it all. None of these things would have happened if just one of the kings had sincerely repented trusted the Lord, and surrendered to the Babylonians. Verses 1 through 3 cover the capture of the city. So let's begin with chapter 39, verses 1 and 2. And it reads, In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it, or surrounded it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, the city, the city was penetrated. So in verses 1 and 2, we see the fall of Jerusalem. King Zedekiah and his army, they try to escape from the city by night, according to verse 4. But the Babylonian army overtakes them and delivers them to King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 3. Then all the princes of the king of Babylon came in and sat in the middle gate, Nergal Sherezer, Samgar Nebo, Sarsakim Rabseris, Nergal Sherezer Rabmag, with the rest of the princes of the king of Babylon. Now, a month after they broke through the walls of Jerusalem, the princes of Babylon, they set up their thrones in the middle gate and they started to take over the control of the government. The princes named here in verse 3, uh, are rough and crude names, and they're hard to pronounce. <laughs> they are names implying what a sad change sin had made. There where Eliakim and Hilkiah were, who carried the name of God of Israel, where they used to sit, now sits these men that are mentioned in verse 3, Nergal Sherezer and Samgar Nebo. And there were others who carried the names of the heathen gods. Now, Sarsakim Rabsaris here. Now, Rabsaris isn't a name, all right? It's a title, so it would, which probably means chief officer. So it would be chief officer Sarsakim, Nergal Sherezer Rabmag. Again, Rabmag is a title, which probably means troop commander. So it would be the troop commander, Nergal Sherezer, and then there were other advisors. Now, according to one commentator, you see Nergal Sarezer and Nergal Sherezer, one spelled S-H-A, another S-A-R. Now, according to one commentator, these are two names of two different people, but generally thought to be one name of the same person. 
And now what Jeremiah prophesied a long time ago in chapter 1, verse 15, was fulfilled, which read that all the families of the kingdoms of the north, says the Lord, they shall come and each one set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. So it was, what was prophesied in chapter 1, verse 15, is here in chapter 39 being fulfilled. And with good reason, <clears throat> the princes of the heathens sit, sets themselves up here at the gate where the gods of the heathen had been set up so often before. Verses 4 through 7 cover Zedekiah's escape and capture. Let's begin with verses 4 and 5. So it was when Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and all the men of war saw them, that they fled and went out of the city by night by way of the king's garden by the gate between the two walls. And he went out by way of the plain. But the Chaldean army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had captured him, that is Zedekiah, they brought him up to King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced judgment on them. Now Zedekiah... His family and his staff, they tried to get away. But the Babylonians caught up with them. And they, they delivered uh, King uh, Zedekiah to King Nebuchadnezzar along with his family and his staff at King Nebuchadnezzar's headquarters at Riblah, which was about two miles north of Jerusalem. So there at Riblah, King Nebuchadnezzar sentenced all of them. And the Babylonians had a bad reputation for being cruel. Look at verses 6 through 7 now. Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes in Riblah. The king of Babylon also killed all the nobles of Judah. Moreover, he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with the bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. So then King Nebuchadnezzar, after he gets... Uh, king Zedekiah brought to him, King Nebuchadnezzar slaughters Zedekiah's sons in front of him. And then what does he do? He puts out Zedekiah's eyes. So the last thing that King Zedekiah saw was his sons being slaughtered, and that would be, that would haunt him for the rest of his life. Ezekiel had prophesied that Zedekiah wouldn't see the land of Babylon, and the prophecy proved to be true. King Zedekiah was taken captive to Babylon in chains where he died. Verses 8 through 10 covered the destruction of Jerusalem. Let's begin with verse 8. And the Chaldeans, or Babylonians, burned the king's house and the houses of the people with fire and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. So the Babylonians, they, they methodically went around Jerusalem to destroy the whole city. God said in chapter 32, verse 31 of Jeremiah, From the time this city was built until now, it has done nothing but anger me. So I have determined to get rid of it. All through Jeremiah's ministry, he warned the people over and over that Jerusalem would be captured and destroyed. Verses 9 through 10. Then, Zeb, then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive to Babylon the remnant of the people who remained in the city and those who defected to him with the rest of the people who remained. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah the poor people who had nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. 
So at the same time that the Babylonians were destroying Jerusalem, they ransacked the city. They took the special things out of the temple and took them to Babylon. The soldiers rounded up the best of the people and took them to Babylon. Now, there had been an exile before this. In 597 B.C., we see it in chapter, we'll see it in chapter 52, verse 28. And there would be a third one in 582 B.C., chapter 52, verse 30. The poorer, unskilled people were left behind to plow the land because somebody had to feed the soldiers who were left behind. And 11 through 14 cover the release of Jeremiah. Look at verses 11 through 14. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave charge concerning Jeremiah to Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, saying, Take him and look after him and do him no harm, but do to him just as he says to you. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, sent Neb, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Rabsaris, Nergal, Shariza, Rabmag, and all the king of Babylon's chief officers. Then they sent someone to take Jeremiah from the court of the prison and committed him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, that he should take him home. So he dwelt among the people. Since the Lord promised Jeremiah that he would survive all of this, all of the opposition, all of the persecution against him, he, he, God moved Nebuchadnezzar to release Jeremiah from prison and to treat him kindly. So Jeremiah was turned over to Gedaliah to take care of him, who later became the governor of the land. But it's not the same Gedaliah that we talk, they read about earlier who wanted to kill him back in chapter 38, verse 1. Verses 15 through 18 cover the promise of deliverance for Ebed-Melech. Look at verse 15 through 18 now. Meanwhile, the word of the Lord had come to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of prison, saying, Go and speak to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring my words upon this city for adversity and not for good, and they shall be performed in that day before you. But I will deliver you in that day, says the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid. For I will surely deliver you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but your life shall be as a prize to you, because you have put your trust in me, says the Lord. While Jeremiah was still in the court of the prison, according to verse 15, he was given a message for Ebed-Melech in verse 16. During his normal work duties, he appeared before Jeremiah. And he was instructed to go with him with the following message of hope from the Lord. First, the hope of the, we see the message. God hadn't changed his mind in the slightest bit in his purpose to punish Jerusalem. It tells us in verse 16, God says, I will do to this city everything that I have threatened. Secondly, the city's punishment would take place before the very eyes of Ebed-Melech. Verse 16, God says, you will see its destruction. And third, for Ebed-Melech's courage in confronting the king for the wrongdoing of putting Jeremiah in the cistern, God promised to reward Ebed-Melech. In verse 18 here, it says, I will give you your life as a reward. I will rescue you and keep you safe. Again, what it shows us is what God says will come to pass and that you can trust God's word. He will never go back on what he says. 
Ebed-Melech had put his life on the line when he went to, 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 um, to King uh, Nebuchadnezzar because it was very risky for a palace servant to accuse officials of doing wicked things. But the Lord said, notice in verse 17, I will deliver you in that day and you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid. Verse 18, he says, your life shall be as a prize to you. In other words, his life, Ebed-Melech's life, would be given to him like a prize of war. And then fourth, he was promised, Ebed-Melech was promised to be delivered from the men that he was afraid of. He said, I will rescue from those you fear so much, in verse 17. And these men that he was afraid of were probably the Babylonian invaders. The passage here emphasizes the rewards of faith. And it stands, you know, it's a strong comparison to the story of King Zedekiah. Ebed-Melech believed in something. And he risked his own life. And he acted decisively. King Zedekiah also believed that a certain course was right. But he didn't have the courage or faith to act it out physically. One man gained his life and eternal honor while the other received death and eternal disgrace. Ebed-Melech gained his life and eternal honor while King Zedekiah received death and eternal disgrace. So chapter 30 serves as an encouragement to the person who trusts the Lord. They will experience God's protection. And it also serves us as a, uh, serves, uh, us as a subtle warning against self-centeredness that is only doing what will benefit one's self. Now chapter 40. Instead of seeking the Lord and making a new beginning, the remnant, the people left behind after the Babylonian invasion, repeated the very same sins that led to the collapse of the nation in the first place, as well as the destruction of the city. They wouldn't listen to the word of God. They went to Egypt for help and they worshipped idols. The people's sinful behavior must have really saddened Jeremiah's heart. But you know what? He stayed with them. And he tried to get them to obey the word of God. God had punished the nation. But even this severe punishment didn't change the people's hearts. It just showed how hard their, hard their hearts were. They were still bent on doing evil. <clears throat> and what took place was a sad thing with the same kind of people that's, that we see in every age. No matter you know, what kind of you know, things that we go through and, and in the judgment that God brings, we see the same kind of people continue to do the same thing. The place and the people of history, they might change a little bit from time to time. But the characters, the heart, are still the same. Now in chapter 40, verses 1 through 6, covers Jeremiah's release from prison. Look at verse 1 of chapter 40. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the Lord, had let him go from Ramah when he had taken him bound in chains among all who were carried away captive from Jerusalem and Judah who were carried away captive to Babylon. Verse 1 contains a typical, typical introduction to a prediction. As we've seen before, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. But then there's a message that follows. 
But the Lord didn't actually speak until chapter 42, verse 9. Though the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, he didn't speak. Here he spoke in chapter 42, verse 9. Jeremiah was set free after the Babylonians captured Jerusalem back in uh, chapter 39, verses 11 through 14. But somehow Jeremiah got mixed up with the captives who were getting ready in Ramah for their long march to Babylon. So Nebuzaradan, who was the, 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 the guard of the, uh, the, uh, of the uh, army, uh, the, the guard of the prison, found Jeremiah locked up in chains, mixed in with the captives taken from Jeremiah to Judah. So he lets them go in Ramah. He let him go, Jeremiah go, in Ramah. And it seems to be the place that the captives were taken before being, again, uh, deported to Babylon. The word Ramah means height. It was about 500 miles north of Jerusalem, and it's identified today with modern Ur-Ram. Verses 2 and 3. And the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord your God has pronounced this doom on this place. Now the Lord has brought it and has done just as he said. And here's why. Because you people have sinned against the Lord and not obeyed his voice. Therefore, this thing has come upon you. Nebuzaradan reminded Jeremiah, Jeremiah, your God is the one who's announced this disaster that's come upon Judah. It's strange that a worshiper of Marduk, Nebuzaradan, was a worshiper of Marduk. Marduk was a Babylonian king of the gods. So it's strange that a, worsh- a worshiper of Marduk would recognize the enemy's God as being the cause of Judah's defeat. But Nebuzaradan surely wasn't a worshiper of the Lord Jehovah. So he was probably quoting Jeremiah's own words that had been reported to him during the siege of Jerusalem. And here he reminds Jeremiah, Jeremiah, he says, God's the one who has done what he said he was going to do. God brought this. And so for the moment, Nebuzaradan became kind of a, a, a theologian as he was explaining that the calamity that fell on Judah is because the people had sinned against their Lord. They didn't obey God. So Nebuzaradan gives the source of judgment here. Notice he says, the Lord has brought it. He says, the Lord has brought it. Even though the Babylonian army would physically do the damage in Jerusalem and Judah, behind it all was Jehovah God. He used Judah and Jerusalem, or I'm sorry, he used the Babylonian army as his instrument to bring judgment and the damage in Judah and Jerusalem. It was God who announced this destruction as a form of judgment upon the Jews because of their sin. Now, and I've said this before, when we think about disasters and tragedies, we need to get to the main reason for the cause. In other words, when storms or enemy nations or natural disasters like earthquakes destroy a land, we need to recognize that God is behind it all to bring judgment on a wicked people. We don't like to, we don't like to think about that. The world doesn't like when we say that. 
You know, we talk about, you know, a, a, a something destructive and, and the things that, that happen, whether, regardless of what it is, and you say, it's God's judgment upon the land. They don't like that. They don't want to hear that. They don't want to believe that. But again, when you look at the Scriptures, those things were brought, were, were brought on by God as judgment in the land for their sin, for their evil, for their wickedness. That being true, man, we need to be ready because of the evil that's in our land today, we are, we are ripe for God's judgment. And in verse 3, notice the words, as he said. In ver- and, uh, now the Lord, notice, has brought it, this judgment, and notice, and has done just as he said. And those words, as he said there in verse 3, speaks of the certainty of judgment. And as God has spoken about the great tribulation period and all that's going to take place in the Revelation, it is going to come to pass, as He said. God warned Israel over and over again that judgment would come if they continued to be disobedient. And remember, God's Word is sure. It's a sure thing. God doesn't say one thing and and, and do another. If God promises something, whether it's judgment or a blessing, you can count on it. It, is, it will be a sure thing. So, you know, don't mock the word of God. Not one word of, of, of what God says will fail to come to pass. In Isaiah 55, 11, we read, God says, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. In Joshua 23, 14, it says, Behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. The fulfillment of divine prophecy is as sure as the sun rising every day. Sin, on the other hand, brings judgment. It says here, because you people have sinned against the Lord and not obeyed His voice, therefore this thing has come upon you. This thing, His judgment has come upon the people because they disobeyed God. Judah's disobedience to God is what brought the judgment that they experienced. And it was brought on them. God used the Babylonians to bring on this, the invasion to, to bring the judgment. Judgment is the result of our sin. And, and you know what? We don't blame God for judgment. Because it's not, God is not being mean. He's not being evil. He, it's, it's, it's man's fault, not God's. When we ignore God's word and we live our life our own way, Judgment will surely come because God says, you have sinned. Verse 4. And now, look, I free you this day from the chains that, you, that were on your hand. And if it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come and I will look after you. But if it seems wrong for you to come with me to Babylon, remain here. See, all the land is before you, wherever it seems good and convenient for you to go there. So after he's set free, King Nebuchadnezzar invites him, Jeremiah, you can come to me with Babylon if you want. But if you don't want to come with me, you don't have to. 
Jeremiah was free to go wherever he liked. Verses 5 and 6. Now, while Jeremiah had not yet gone back, Nebuzaradan said, Go back to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon has made governor over the cities of Judah, and dwell with him among the people, or go wherever it seems convenient for you. So the captain of the guard gave him rations and a gift and let him go. Notice how God takes care of his own. Verse 5 is about God's care for Jeremiah when Jerusalem fell to Babylon. God used, think of it, the captain of the guard. All right? Nebuzaradan. He was the means. God used this man as the means of setting him free. And and the point is, God's care comes many times from the most unexpected unexpected sources. Those that you would least expect it, or in a way that you would least expect it, God will use those means to do His will, to take care of you. Jeremiah didn't find much care from his own people of Israel. But here... The captain of the Babylonian government sees to it that Jeremiah is properly taken care of. That he's given the care. The proper care. The captain of the guard wasn't a charitable person who was likely to show any kindness or compassion to anyone. Because normally he was the man who took care of the king's prisoners and the punishment, he would punish those that were not in favor with the king. So for Nebuzaradan to show Jeremiah kindness, this was really very unexpected. But remember in, in Scripture, there's, God used ravens and He used a poor widow to take care of Elijah during a famine. And He can bring care to you through unexpected ways as well. And the timing of the care... The timing of the care was when Jeremiah seemed to be gone. He thought he was going to die. And yet in his darkest hour, Jeremiah was given the best of care. You see, God will take care of us no matter what our situation is. There's no crisis too too big for God to handle. There's no pit, Corey Tim Boom said, there's no pit so deep that the hand of God cannot reach down and pull you out of. Jeremiah was given the best of care. Again, no crisis is really, no crisis is too big for God. You know, he's not too weak or, or, or not wise enough to deal with the situations that we experience. His care isn't limited, think of it, remember this, his care isn't limited by our circumstances, no matter how bleak they may look to us. God has unlimited power. But you know what his, he, he has one limitation. You know what that limitation is? You and me. What I won't let him do. What I won't let God do in my life. That's his only limitation. Because he won't force me to do something against my will. Again and again. We read in Psalm 78:41, the psalmist said, They tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. Remember that. We are the only ones who limit God. We're His only limitation. 
And then we see the generosity of the care that Jeremiah received. It says the captain of the guard gave Jeremiah rations and a gift and let him go. Think of it. He gave him rations and he gave him a gift and he let him go. The rations were food that was very scarce at that time in Jerusalem. The reward was a present, something extra from the enemy. God, you know, you can say God puts frosting on the cake of his care to us. The generosity of the care is also seen in Jeremiah's earlier release from prison by the captain of the guard, again in in, uh, uh, verse 4. I mean, how wonderfully God takes care of us. When you're mistreated by those who you would expect to be supported by, remember this verse, God cares. God cares. Verses 7 through 12 covers the people's response to Gedaliah's appointment. Look at verses 7 through 12 now. And when all the captains of the armies who were in the fields, they and their men, heard that the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, governor in the land, and committed to him men, women, children, and the poorest of the land, who had not been carried away captive to Babylon, then they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah. Ishmael, the son of, of Nethaniah, Johanan, and Jonathan, the sons of Korea, and Sariah, the son of Tanhumath, the sons of Ephi, the Nedophathite, and, and Jezaniah, the son of the, the Maacathite, they and their men, and Gedaliah, the son of Ahikim, the son of Shaphan, took an oath before them and their men, saying, Do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. As for me, I will indeed dwell at Mizpah and serve the Chaldeans who come to us. But you, gather wine and summer fruit and oil, put them in your vessels and dwell in your cities that you have taken. Likewise, when all the Jews who were in Moab among the Ammonites in Edom and who were in all the countries heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant of Judah and that he had set over them Gedaliah, the son of Ahikim, the son of Shaphan, then all the Jews returned out of all the places where they had been driven and came to the land of Judah to Gedaliah and Mizpah and gathered wine and summer fruit in abundance. So the leaders of the Judean rebel groups in the countryside, they heard that the king of Babylon made Gedaliah governor over the poor people who were left behind in Judah, the men, the women, the children who had been you know, exiled to Babylon. So they went to Gedaliah, they went to see Gedaliah and Mizpah. Uh, Ishmael, Johanan, Jonathan, Sariah, the sons of Ephi, Jezaniah, and all of their men. Gedaliah promised them that the the Babylonians meant them no harm. He said to them, do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. Again, notice in verse 9, he says, dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon. It shall be well with you. And then in verse 10, it says, As for me, I will stay in Mizpah to represent you before the Babylonians who come to meet with us. Settle in the towns that you've taken and live off the land. Harvest the grapes and the summer fruits and the olives and store them away. So when the Judeans in Moab, Ammon, and Edom, and the other nearby countries heard that the king of Babylon had left a few people in Judah and that Gedaliah was the governor, they began to return to Judah from the places that they fled to during the invasion. They stopped at Mizpah to meet with Gedaliah, and then they went to the Judean countryside to gather a great harvest of grapes and other crops. But just as life seemed to be getting back to normal, a terrible thing happened. 
In verses 13 through 16, it covers a warning to assassinate Gedaliah. Look at verses 13 and 14. Moreover, Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the captains of the forces that were in the fields came to Gedaliah at Mizpah and said to him, Do you certainly know that Baalus, the king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, to murder you? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, did not believe them. So Johanan and all the army officers who stayed in the open country, they came to Gedaliah and they came to warn him about a plot to kill him. They had found out that the Ammonite king, Baalus, was sending Ishmael to assassinate him. Now, we don't know why. It isn't known why they wanted to kill Gedaliah. It might have been a personal grudge. It might have been a territorial thing. And Gedaliah, as we see in verse 14, didn't want to believe it. He didn't want to believe the plot against his life. Again, we don't know why, but it did cost him his life. In closing, let's look at verses 15 and 16 now. Then Johanan, the son of Korea, spoke secretly to Gedaliah in Mizpah, saying, Let me go, please, and I will kill Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and no one will know it. Why should he murder you so that all the Jews who are gathered to you would be scattered and the remnant in Judah perish? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, said to, John, uh, to Johanan, the son of Korea, you shall not do this thing, for you speak falsely concerning Ishmael. Johanan and all the officers who stayed in the open country, I'm sorry, again, Johanan started out as a brave leader. But later on, he led the people astray. We don't know how he and his associates heard about this plot about Ishmael killing Gadaliah, but their information was right on. If Gadaliah would have listened to them, he wouldn't have died. His life would have been spared. The fact that the king of the Ammonites had hired him, Ishmael suggests that he was making money. But there was a lot more involved than just making the money. The Ammonites had been a part of the meeting in Jerusalem where the nations united with Judah and had planned to break this bond that that Babylon had over them. And so as a friend of Zedekiah and the king of Ammon, Ammon, Ishmael didn't want to see the Jewish people submit to Nebuchadnezzar even after the war was over. Why? He was a patriot. He, he was supportive to his country. He was loyal to his country. And he used his patriotism to promote his own selfish purposes. Maybe there was a, the key factor had to do with pride. Maybe it was selfish ambition. Ishmael was a descendant of David through Elishama, and he no doubt felt that he should have been named ruler of the nation because of his royal blood, and he was a patriot. Who was Gadaliah, that he should take the place of a king? So the way the Babylonians had treated Ishmael's relative, King Zedekiah, would be no encouragement for the people to submit to his authority. Johanan wanted to kill Ishmael, but Gedaliah refused, which was the right thing to do. But he was wrong, not getting a group together of loyal men to guard him day and night. So not only would that have told Ishmael that the governor knew what was going on, but also it would have protected Gedaliah's life from those who wanted him dead. So Gedaliah should have listened to Johanan and not be so trusting about Ishmael. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, Where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, 
there is safety. Father, once again, we come before you. And Lord, we, as always, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the, the counsel that we receive. We thank you for the insight that we receive, God. And, and Father, help us to apply the things that we learned. And Father, here, again, we learned about the judgment that comes upon us, Lord, from our own stubbornness, God, from our own sinfulness, from, from doing, uh, living the way that we think we should live, God, and just ignoring your ways, Father. So, Lord, we just ask now that you would just enlighten our hearts and our minds, God. Show us the things that we need to know and the things that we need to do and give us the strength to do it, God. So, Father, we thank you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.